The account of the rich young ruler is a familiar one. A typical message about it goes something like this. Rich man meets Jesus, tries to work or buy his way into eternal life. Doesn't work, goes away sad. Of course we know it's impossible, because no amount of work or money is ever enough. Thank God he's made it possible. Just believe in Jesus. Yay! Sounds about right? Yeah, but complete? Well, let's just say there's so much more than this simplistic overview. Hi, this is Hansen from Archippus Awakening, a ministry that's dedicated to the awakening of saints to know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. And this is what Kingdom 101 is all about. We revisit Kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His Kingdom that we may receive and move on Kingdom assignments according to His Kingdom ways. Will you join me? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, will you be with us, Lord? Lord Jesus, we proclaim you and your kingdom. Holy Spirit, teach us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, our text is Matthew chapter 19, 16 to 26. Considering the context will give us a good start. In our previous installment, Matthew chapter 19, 13 to 15, it was about little children, and the topic was humility and how that relates to receiving the kingdom of God. Now, this sets the context and provides the contrast for our passage. If previously it was about humility, then this time it is about pride. We meet the rich young ruler, and sadly, instead of receiving the kingdom, he misses the kingdom. And so in this teaching, we will cover the following points. Matthew chapter 19, 16 to 22, we will consider the man's profile, his posture, his perspective of eternal life, as well as his presumption. And then in 23 to 26, the punchline of Jesus that punctures the pride of the man. And let's consider pride's plight and the possibility of missing the kingdom of God if we are not careful. But thank God we know that He has made all things possible. But what does that really mean for us? There's a final section in verses 27 all the way to 30, but we will leave that for another time. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So we are told that there's this one who comes to meet with Jesus. What's his profile? If you look at your text and your passage, we will see a few things that describes this man. First, we see that he is a young man, and I believe he's got potential. Now think of the young adults in your congregation or in your ministry, right? The whole life is ahead of them. Young adult, great potential. Next, we know that he has position, a leader of sorts. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but in Luke, he is referred to as a ruler or a leader. Young man, leadership position, potential position. Not only that, he's got performance. Read on and you'll find that he keeps the commandments. He was serving well and he did everything right. Now, add to that possessions. This guy is rich. We are told that he's got many possessions. 
potential, position, performance, possessions, and I would add maybe even popular. Now, it sounds like someone we like to have in our church or ministry, don't you think? A very precious member that we'd like to protect and keep even. Now that we've considered the man's profile, let's look at his posture. What was his heart all about as he met Jesus? Now, he approaches the Lord in the presence of the multitudes, and I believe also Jesus' motley crew of disciples was there. Now, was he sincere? Did he really want to come to learn something from the Lord? Well, the context helps us to determine this, right? Remember, it's about humility and it's about pride. And so I believe he was more likely proud, perhaps a little presumptuous. Because of his profile and track record, he might have considered himself quite perfect. I mean, compared to this pathetic bunch that hung out with Jesus, I mean, come on. He might have expected Jesus to readily invite him to be his star student, to be his protege. Well, the one who thought he is so very good meets the one who is truly good. And he asks this interesting question, Good teacher, what good thing must I do that I may have eternal life? Now, was he fishing for compliments? He probably thought he had all the answers already. And that's why we got to love Jesus' answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Well, some commentaries would say that Jesus was saying, only God is good, so since you call me good, you must be considering me as equal to God. And just in case you don't know, I'm telling you, nothing wrong with that. I am God. Well, that's one position. But looking at the context and understanding the man's posture, Jesus might just have been sending a signal to him. Why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good. Now, if you think you're so good, my dear friend, are you saying you're almost like God? As good as God? Well, careful where you're headed, young man. It didn't end so well with another character that came after you. His name was Herod, and we find him in Acts chapter 12. He considered himself as God. And mm -mm, not a good way to end. Having looked at the profile and the posture of the man, we're now ready to consider his perspective, and specifically his perspective about eternal life. After all, that was the question that he asked the Lord. What must I do that I may have eternal life? Do you realize that in Matthew chapter 19, these are the only two mentions of eternal life in verses 16 as well as verse 29. There's only one other Old Testament mention, and it's found in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where the words eternal life are found. Now, our Christian understanding, our typical understanding of the Jews was that they are working, they're trying to work for their salvation, as opposed to our understanding of simply having faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not totally accurate. The Jews were very proud of their covenant status as Abraham's children. Well, as God's people, they were saved. And as a good Jew, they were expected to keep the law. This was an outflow of one who has been saved. Well, through the study and the living out of Torah, 
they were not really working for, but they were living towards a final salvation or deliverance to everlasting life in the everlasting kingdom instead of everlasting contempt. In fact, the rabbinic understanding is this. The words everlasting life were literally a lasting life or a life of eternity. Now, this is juxtaposed against a fleeting life, one that's focused on the temporal, concerned only with everyday things like trying to make money, eating, sleeping, whiling your life away. Everlasting life is a life focused on matters of eternal importance and significance. And this is to be achieved as one who is saved through the study and the living out of Scripture. Now consider, it doesn't sound very different from what we understand today also. I will give you another observation. That the words eternal life is mentioned alongside the other words, kingdom of heaven, as well as salvation, all within this one passage, all are mentioned together, and in fact, they are used interchangeably. Now, this might surprise some of us, but the important point to note is this. How we define one will help us define the others. They are not really different terms. They mean quite the same thing. Now look at eternal life. Our typical Christian view is tends to be a life that happens afterwards, right? It's future. Sometime in the future, it's in heaven. Or take, for example, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, for many of us, we think we are already saved because we are in the kingdom of heaven already. In fact, there's nothing else to do. Again, we are waiting for heaven. And when we speak about salvation, to us many, we will think it's a point in time and all we have to do is just to believe. Well, that's all right, but not complete. Let me give you a better perspective. Eternal life to us really is a life of meaning and of significance according to God's ways. It has to be looking to eternal value. In fact, it starts now. It's a process. Eternal life begins now. It's not only in heaven. And what's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's really being under the rule and the reign of God, and it begins now again. We enter into that rule and reign now, and we desire to be entering into the fullness of that kingdom when the King, Jesus, finally returns. How about salvation? It's not just a point, it is a process. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will finally be saved. Where? Into the everlasting life as well as kingdom. So can you see our view of eternal life, kingdom of heaven, and salvation? It's not really that different from a Jewish perspective. And with that, we can now better understand why Jesus answered the way he did. He told a young man, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, this is not wrong. The Jews searched scriptures. They lift out Torah for eternal life. That's in John chapter 5, verse 39. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, we're told by Paul that the doers of the law will be justified. 
However, they missed a very, very important detail. They missed the one, the person who gave the scriptures. And that's why John says in chapter 5, verse 40, you search the scriptures for eternal life, but they all point to me, Jesus said, but you are missing me. And the Lord will reveal this point later. Well, to the young man, he hears, keep the commandments. Sure, which ones? And the Lord gives him this list uh, from the list of commandments that he has to live out. And the young man, very easily and quickly, he says, well, check, done. From my youth, I've done all these things. Don't believe? Ask my youth leaders. Ask my pastors. Anything else? And he probably expected Jesus to say, oh, wow, nothing else. And can I praise you? I mean, you are so perfect, right? I mean, that was the presumption and the posture of the man. But was he really perfect? And so he asked this question, what do I still lack? I tell you what's perfect. It was a perfect setup. Let's read Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Here we will consider the man's presumption. When he was saying, what do I still lack? I mean, understanding his profile and his posture and his perspective, now we understand his presumption. He is really saying, I don't think I'm lacking in anything. Let's consider the word lack. It has a meaning of being last or to be behind or inferior. And if that was the case, then one would be lacking or missing something. And so the young man was really saying, how can I be behind of or inferior to anyone? I mean, come on. How can I be everlasting life? I am never last in life. In fact, I'm always the first. I'm the best. Am I good or am I good? Surely I will have everlasting life. So he's saying, I'm not lacking in anything. He presumes he's got it. He's perfect. He's all right. And let's hold this in our hearts and in our minds because right at the end, Jesus will make his concluding point in verse 30 by saying, many who are first will be last and the last first. And again at the parable much later in Matthew chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last. Can you see the play of words down here? But the man presumes he would be first. The question is, would he or would he end up being last. We get to Jesus' punchline in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Notice first that it is a conditional statement, and there are two parts that we have to consider both together. Let's look at that conditional statement or that word, if. If you want to be perfect. Huh? Can you imagine the young man listening to this? You mean I'm not perfect yet? Ouch! But I thought I was. If you want to be perfect, this is what you've got to do. Part one, go and sell all and give to the poor. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. Notice that Jesus was addressing his pride and his security first. If the Lord had just said, follow me, imagine the man would have missed the point entirely. 
He would have thought that Jesus called him because of who he is, what he has, what he has accomplished, and what he can bring to the ministry. I mean, I am such an asset. You are so privileged to have me. Also, it's not just about giving to the poor to have treasure in heaven. I mean, think about this. You can give all you want, lay up all the treasure, but what use is this treasure if you do not finally enter the kingdom? Part two, come, follow me. Now, let's remember, it's still about eternal life, entering the kingdom, and about salvation. And many of us would still ask this question then. Then is it not about just faith, right? Don't we just, just believe? After all, Jesus did teach Nicodemus about entering the kingdom, and all he said was, believe and be born again. Now, that's not wrong, but unfortunately, we've made it only about faith in Jesus without the need and the understanding to follow Jesus. Now, if we look at everything in context and interpret it correctly, what we see here is that to believe is thus to follow. We cannot believe and not follow. And to follow means to serve and to obey. See, all believers are followers of Jesus Christ. All who say, I believe, are disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus required it of the young man, and he requires it of us too. Nothing has changed. And this is mentioned right at the end of the punchline, because it is the emphasis Part one is useless if not followed through with part two. In other words, to enter into eternal life, to enter the kingdom, to be saved, we have to believe and follow Jesus. What a punchline. Jesus' punchline knocked out every point and premise of pride. Look at performance. The young man thought it was good. Jesus was telling him, this is not enough because you can do all you want. No one is righteous by doing these things. It doesn't result in this. What matters most is to know the one who is righteous that gives you righteousness through faith. And this is done by having a real relationship with Jesus. John in chapter 17 verse 3 defines it. This is eternal life and they may know you, the only one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, you can know all the rules, but if you not know the ruler and not have a relationship with him, it all accounts for nothing. Look at possessions. Earthly treasures have no eternal value. Jesus doesn't need, he doesn't want what we have. He has everything. And usually what we want to keep will keep us from one who is the most important and it keeps us from Jesus. Look at position. This young man would no longer be the leader that he's used to be. He now has to be a follower. That means no more master of my own destiny. I don't get to set my own program or pursue my own agenda. I have to follow Jesus, listen to him, and do things that I may not 
always like or enjoy. In fact, there's going to be a lot of insecurity as far as I may understand. You see, Jesus' punchline knocked out everything that this young man held dear. Let's have a simple paraphrase of this punchline. What the Lord was saying simply is, humble yourself, follow Jesus. Simple enough? Does it sound familiar? It is so similar to what Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, in the same account, he says, go sell everything, take up the cross, and then follow me. It's almost word for word. It's very consistent. But for this young man, there is a direct application of what it means to deny himself. Get rid of all these things. In alignment check, we will use these phrases. De-align from the self. Align with the Christ. Look at this punchline. It hits us squarely between the eyes. It wakes us up and invites us to align with Jesus that we may be assigned for him. Matthew chapter 19, verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man's pride was punctured by Jesus' punchline, but his pride sadly remained persistent. His identity was still tied to his own possessions, his position, his performance. He relied so much on himself, his own abilities, as well as his assets. And as a result, he could not bring himself to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This man's source of pride, his great many possessions. Luke says he was very rich. He had great wealth. His source of pride became his reason for grief. In the account in the Gospel of Luke, he uses this word, very sorrowful. And it has a meaning to be surrounded with grief. Is it not interesting? This man came wrapped in pride, but left surrounded with grief. He came so full of himself, but left full of sorrow. And this is what pride does to so many of us. We think we have everything, but when we really discover the truth, we are left deflated, punctured to know that really we have nothing if we don't have Jesus. After the man leaves, Jesus addresses the disciples and presses home the point about the plight of pride. He says to them, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to make his point so clear, he uses exaggeration, hyperbole again. Look at this camel, this largest animal in our region. And look at the eye of a needle, this small little gap. You think it's possible for the camel to go in? I tell you, it's easier for this guy to go through than for a rich man to enter the kingdom or to be saved or to have eternal life. 
Now, some have said that it refers to a gate in a wall in Israel called the Eye of the Needle. And the camel has to stoop down, get rid of the luggage before it can go through. Well, let me tell you, there's no such gate as I understand. Or some have said that it's not really camel. The same word can be read as rope. Now, that sounds a little bit more uh, meaningful because you're trying to thread this rope through the eye of a needle. Well, whatever it is, don't miss Jesus' main point. It is very hard. That's all he's saying. It's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom because his possessions, his position, his prestige, he holds on to these and he's not willing to humble himself, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to follow Jesus. I have heard of many testimonies of how the rich come to faith or become serious in their faith when they lost everything or had major problems which money cannot solve. Hence, I believe it's always better to humble yourself than to be finally humbled by God. And so let's be careful. Beware the plight of pride. It is dangerous. It's dangerous because it can cause one to miss entirely the kingdom of God. And pride can happen to any one of us, not just for the rich or the super rich. I know it's very easy and very tempting to think that, oh no, I'm not the one who is rich. I mean, I'm okay. I mean, look at the super wealthy people. I am middle of the road. I'm all right. I think a better question to ask is this. Are possessions, position or performance, even presumption, are these producing pride in our hearts? Remember, it's not just about believing in Jesus, but to also follow Him, to serve Him, to obey Him, to become disciples of Jesus. That's the main point that the Lord is reminding us here. And so to safeguard against pride, does it mean that we have to give away everything to follow Jesus? Well, no. I believe this instruction was given uniquely and specifically to this young man. And for some, the Lord might be telling you to do that. But in Luke, two other stories would follow this account. Zacchaeus, for example, was a rich man. He was not instructed to give away everything. But the result of his salvation, he made restitution. He used the wealth correctly. And after that, the parable of the talents. Again, it's about stewarding and investing wealth in a correct manner for the sake of the kingdom. So no, you don't have to give away all your possessions. What we need to get rid of is pride. And if that means having to get rid of something that is dear to us, for example, money, or maybe for some it might be ministry even, right? Our pride can come from some of these sources. Whatever we need to get rid of, to get rid of pride, let's do that and let's follow Jesus. All the disciples react in shock and great astonishment. Who then can be saved? You've got to trust the disciples to still not get it, right? And don't laugh at them. I think many of us, we are still the same. 
In their minds, to be rich means to be blessed of God, to be favored of God. Surely, these must be God's first pick. And these are the ones who are going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, look at that. They already have evidence of God's blessing upon them. Don't we think the same way too today? Well, the Lord is trying to tell the disciples once more. He presses home the point. Hello, it's not about that. But the disciples don't get it. And so they think, if it's hard for these to be scarcely saved, what hope do we have? Is there even a possibility at all? Matthew 19, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, with men, left to our own devices and our thinking, only the wealthy and the powerful will qualify. But not the others. The rest of us, the nobodies, the have-nots, the last, not so with God. Because He looks for those who are humble, those who are willing to trust in Him, to rely on Him, to be submitted and obedient to Him. How? In and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, by faith that it may be according to grace, not by possessions, position, potential, or power. See, what is impossible with pride? God makes it possible through humility. And that is why Matthew 19, 13 to 15, which we've already covered, it declares the kingdom of God belongs to the humble. But for the rich, if your source of pride comes from what you have, who you are, what you're able to do, it's very hard to be humble. Hence, very hard to follow Jesus. And we've already seen that this means it's hard to be saved, to have eternal life, to enter the kingdom, because it's not just a point in time, it is a process that we journey with the Lord. And this is why finally, there will be many, many surprises. Be careful, the tables will be turned. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus finally declares, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Many who are proud will not find their way in, but those who are humble, these are the ones who will enter the kingdom. Because the humble will be exalted, the proud will be rejected. Those who think they are never last in life will find themselves without everlasting life. And that is the account of the rich young man's encounter with Jesus. Not quite as simplistic as just believe in Jesus and go to heaven, yeah? Well, here are the key points again. Eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, salvation, and following Jesus all refer to the same thing. It is really all about Jesus. It's a process, a journey, a relationship with the Lord. To believe in Jesus means to follow Jesus, to obey Him, to serve Him wholeheartedly. And this is only possible with humility. Humility draws us near to Jesus. Pride keeps us from Jesus. This is why we must guard against pride's plight. 
because pride blinds us to what matters most, the King and the Kingdom of God. If we're not careful, our position can result in pride if we do not acknowledge the grace of God. Our performance can result in pride if it's only outward piety and not obedience to Jesus. Our possessions can result in pride if we treat others as less deserving. But it's not wrong to be rich, but we just have to be careful with what comes with riches, pride and deception. It distorts our perspective of the kingdom and deceives us into thinking we are on the right track when we may be totally off course. This is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. It's focusing on the wrong indicators. Here are some biblical reminders to the rich. Love Jesus, not riches. Trust Jesus, not riches. Serve Jesus, not riches. Follow Jesus, not riches. Use earthly treasures to lay up heavenly treasures. Be content, not greedy. Be humble, not haughty. Let's close with another proud, rich, young leader, the Apostle Paul. After meeting Jesus, he considered everything as lost, rubbish, dung. In humility, he pressed on to know and follow Jesus, even to suffer for Jesus, that he may attain to the resurrection, salvation, enter the kingdom, have eternal life. That is what it means to be truly rich. Humble yourself. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for opening our eyes to show us what is important to you and to warn us against the plight of pride. Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, because many times we fail and we need your strength and your enablement. Teach us, Lord, so that we can be humble and that we can enter the kingdom and to enjoy all you have for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.